Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University, prolific author and blogger at Bet On It. He is the author of multiple books, including four, that's right, four that he and I have previously discussed on the show, The Myth of the Rational Voter, The Case Against Education, Open Borders, and Labor Econ Versus the World. And I am thrilled to have him back once again for us to talk today about his most recent book, How Evil Are Politicians? Essays on Demagoguery. Brian Kaplan, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. So I, I want to start with your opening to the book, which is what I've come to think of as sort of a typical Brian Kaplan-esque opening, if you will. Uh, a big, bold statement. You, you write, I think politicians are, by and large, evil people. <laughs> that seems like a, a great place to start. But I want to start in sort of more of a social science kind of way, starting with that word evil. I'm wondering, define your terms, Brian Kaplan. How would you do that? Evil is a moral term. And if you go over to philosophy class, what you'll learn is you can basically give a circular definition. You know, evil means really bad or something like that. But ultimately, it's not going to be very satisfying to someone who doesn't already get what the word means. It means someone who is morally very bad, someone who is woefully deficient in virtue, someone who's high in vice. Uh, There's a lot of synonyms you can use. But honestly, I think that word is one almost everybody understands. If you watch a movie or TV show and you say, wait, is that guy evil? It's like, yes, yes, he is. Um, In real life, you get far fewer chances to apply it because you don't normally actually, first of all, see people who are so clear-cut as they are in fiction, but also fiction just gives you more information than you're ever likely to have in real life. Like in a Shakespeare play, you actually get to see Richard III talk to himself about his evil plans. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> so that's, you're not unlikely to be privy to that in the real world, but that's really the only honest answer is it's a word indicating the very morally bad character. And if you just say, I don't understand that, I can give you some synonyms. <laughs> but if you just say, I don't understand any of them, then I can't really yeah. help you. Yeah. And I think I, the reason I wanted to start with that, because it seems to me that what you're saying is something different than saying that, well, politicians are self-interested actors, which, of course, we all are to some extent. So this is a this is a bigger claim than that. If you have kind of self-interested actors on one end and sociopaths on the other end, you're talking closer to the sociopathic end yeah. of the range, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's 
That's a, a more technical term, but uh, yeah. that may well be amount may well apply also. Again, one thing is, you know, politicians are the kind of people where if the devil came down to them on election night and said, "I will make you win for sure," you're going to lose otherwise. But you have to do the following things. And I say, yeah, most politicians, you'd have to be a pretty weird list that the devil would have to write before they would say, no, thanks, I choose to lose. Well, well, that is a that is the depressing sort of thought. Maybe maybe I can redeem at least some politicians because you say, of course, you think they're by and large evil people. So that, of course, by and large, uh, uh, what do you think? Like, I don't know, 85 percent, something like is that the kind of range you're kind of thinking about? You go up to at least 98%, honestly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grasping at straws here. Uh, maybe this. How about this? Uh, maybe the level of government matters. Uh, I, I'm wondering, maybe you could say, well, yeah, okay, sure, national government, but maybe state government or local government, we have less actual evil. Or, or do you think that doesn't really matter, actually, even, even that? does, actually. So if you go back to my argument, what I really do is quote this great Spider-Man principle with great, with great power comes great responsibility. So intuitively, I think it's very hard to argue with that, to say someone, if you have a million lives in your hands, you ought to make your decisions very carefully and not just do whatever the hell you feel like. Now, if you're talking about someone running a school board, that's where I think you could say, well, what power does this person really have? They don't hold any life or death power. They go and decide what way kids learn math or what sort of the, the curriculum is going to be. You know, so a person like that, I would say, they, they are spending a lot of taxpayer resources. They should put a good effort into it, but it's not like they really hold the power of life and death in their hands. So I would, I, I would, I would lower the bar for them a lot. For state governments, you know, those people have, have life and death in their hands, too. Like, you know, so state politicians, they decide who goes to jail, who doesn't, that kind of thing. I think it's uh, Yale Law Professor Stephen Carter says that he always begins his class in criminal law by saying, look, when you pass a criminal law, you're passing a law where if people don't do it, you're going to put them in jail. Have you thought about that? Right? Is this really something where you think where you actually deem it acceptable to say, if you don't do what you're told, then we are going to put you in a cage? And so in, in that sense, you're, you're definitely you have a higher bar. You think there should be a higher bar for politicians be, because of that kind of Spider-Man, uh, great power, great responsibility. And, and of course, the more the more power you have, then the greater the responsibility. You got a nuclear arsenal in your hands. Yeah, you better really think long and hard about circumstances under which it would be OK to go and use those weapons or threaten to use those weapons. And I mean, do you think that there's something maybe special and special about politicians in, in that? Um, I mean, it's clear you think they're different from what I call normal people, right? At one point in, in the book, you write, while extreme power lusters are a small fraction of humanity, they are a large fraction of successful politicians. Uh, I'm not sure I dispute that, but I'm wondering kind of. Number one, how we might know this, and assuming we do, isn't this something we could maybe say about people who succeed in any kind of very competitive environment? In other words, are politicians special in that sense? Right. I say that they are. The best way to understand how bad politicians are is just to look around the world and see that at least a third of leaders around the world, if you just look at them, really are serial killers. They murder people 
because not even because they have to do it to maintain power, but just because, well, I've got this power and I don't like these people and I'm going to kill them. It is just totally normal throughout human history for leaders of countries to just have their enemies murdered for really looking at them sideways for various petty, for various petty things. Also to face a choice. Look, I can either abandon power or I can go and crash this country in the ground. Which one am I going to do? And again, at least, you know, one leader out of 10 on earth seems to very consciously make that choice. Yeah, well, I could go and give up power, but uh, I want to keep power. And if I have to go and murder a ton of people and turn this country into a wasteland to do it, I will. Um, now, of course, we don't see normal people being put in that situation. To say that out of normal people that I know, I just do not believe one out of 10 would do that kind of thing. If you just put a random person in Maduro's position, I think they would resign, almost almost certainly. They would resign long ago. They would just say, oh, gee, I've really made a mess of things. I'm terrible. So sorry. They wouldn't go and try to start killing their enemies to make sure that they actually stay where they are. So that's the kind of thing that I would start with first. Uh, in terms of would people in any competitive environment do that? You know, so it's hard to be absolutely sure, but I see people that are in quite competitive environments all the time without doing things remotely that terrible. You might say it wouldn't really help them. So you know, a professor like a professor could go and get another 10 publications by murdering some a stranger. Would he do it? Uh, I don't think so. You know, you know, maybe I'd be disappointed, but I really think that is quite unlikely that they would go to such measures. You know, like a, a lot of what's going on at the high levels of power is you just get used to killing people and ordering their deaths and other extremely cruel uh, and actions that you would normally regard as criminal through just done by a regular person. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. But but I also wonder if when we get to sort of the, the top end of corporate America, I, I don't necessarily think there are a whole lot of moral paragons there. And so I, I'm wondering if the comparison class maybe shouldn't be professors or, or we're, we're certainly not real, normal people, but but if the comparison class should maybe be top. CEOs. You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, then well, I think. I, I say, so like, like CEOs have almost no experience with deciding whether a person lives or dies. They might go and use a somewhat riskier kind of truck or something like that, but that's not really different from what any normal person does when they decide, well, which kind of truck am I going to buy? I could get a big SUV. I guess it's a little more likely a pedestrian will die if I kill them. But it's not the same thing as coming up with a kill list and saying these are some people whose heads need to be detached from their bodies. So I'd say that CEOs generally have no experience with this kind of thing. They don't you know, like they hardly ever do any such thing. So, I mean, like, while it wouldn't surprise you, know, like, you know, I, I'm willing to say that people have gotten to that level. It, you know, I think they have some uh, elevated tendency to be willing to do anything to get to the top. But the truth is to become the CEO of a corporation, you just don't have to do anything that awful. You know, someone might say, well, you laid off a thousand people, right? You laid off a thousand people. You're, you, know, you are representative of your shareholders. It's your job to go and not waste the company's money. It's not a charity. And then to say, well, it's like the same as killing a thousand people. It's like, well, you know, if you've ever decided you don't want to keep going to a restaurant anymore because you're not happy with the service, you know, it's the same kind of thing where you're a customer. I don't want to trade with you anymore. It doesn't mean that I'm trying that I want to actually do you harm. I'm not going to go and kill you or put you in a cage or anything else unnatural. Um, so yeah, I mean, I. I would would say that like when you're looking at very competitive groups, then at least you might wonder: are these people that are just willing to make more trade offs? I mean, um, you know, of course, you know, like professional athletes, so they have things like, oh, do I use steroids or not? 
again, like, you know, do I use steroids or not versus do I murder that right. guy's entire family? Uh, they're pretty different choices. So. <laughs> yeah, and I would suppose, you know, some people might say, well, corporate executives, say, might make decisions that contribute to things like climate change and other things that will have dire effects. But but I take your point. It's something very different uh, doing that. Yeah, and, of course, it's something everybody who drives does, like having you know, so the guy run, runs a fleet of a thousand cars. Is he worse than just like someone's going to run the fleet? Would it be any different if it was a thousand independently owned cars that were driving around? Do you think you know, something you, you kind of hit on a little bit that I want to explore is you talked about, you know, shareholders in the corporate, uh, the corporate sphere. And, and I'm wondering if maybe you think that there, there's at least potentially less evil in that sector because in some ways you could argue there's more transparency and, and accountability. I'm not necessarily sure I believe that, but I want to get your take on that. The shareholders in the corporate sphere? or Yeah, the, the idea that, that CEOs are kind of held to or are, are kind of kept from being as evil because they have people they're directly accountable to and they can't necessarily kind of shift that blame. In the end, it kind of falls on them as opposed to politicians. You can say, well, it's the damn Republicans or the damn Democrats or something like that. I see. Or, yeah. Right. I, I doubt that's too big of a factor. I mean, of course, if you're the CEO and things are going poorly, you could just blame market conditions or say, like, you know, there's new competition from China. There's always someone that you can shift the blame to. I mean, I think, I think like, the, the main thing we know for sure is that they just don't do very much because they don't have the power. Yeah. And then if you're making the inference, well, would they if they could? Well, for the people that do, we know what they would because they do this. They actually are in that position. And then for the people that don't have that, there you have to go and make a you know, make a harder judgment. Would this person, given vast power, actually start massacring innocent people? Um, I would just say it seems really unlikely. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, right. And all, by, by the way, so I think you know, there's a later essay I believe called you know, "Could Such a Man Care?" Where I'm talking about Chavez and Maduro. There, I point out that it's very common for politicians to actually paint themselves as being the most morally upright people in the world, as if all they do is sit around thinking about other people's pain all day, and then within a few years they're massacring people. Right. Right. And it, like, if you just think about the nicest people you know who actually do really seem to care about other people, can you imagine them? given power is starting to murder people. Well, no, you know, I, I wonder because, you know, it gets in that idea of right power corrupting. And when you give even a normal person that sort of power, and I think of, you know, the Stanford uh, prison uh, experiment and other things like that. And so I wonder if it's not necessarily just the people, but it's just the power kind of inherently is corrupting of folks, at least to a certain extent. I mean, so, so it's plausible that that's happening as well. Um, I will say, out of people that that I personally know that I think of as really nice, these are the kinds of people where if it just came down to resign or you have to kill some people, they would just resign. They, you know, these are people whose scruples kick in long before that. People who are like, "Oh my God, I, I forgot to leave a tip at the restaurant. How can I go and make this up?" And you, know, you might might say they're posturing for some benefit, and there are people like that, but. People you've known for a long time who you, know, you say, wow, even when there's nothing in it for them at all, they still seem to just really take other people's suffering to heart. And then to realize there's a lot of politicians who talk that way, but almost none who govern that way. And in fact, bizarrely, the ones who talk the most about how incredibly wonderful they are tend to be the ones who actually, given power, are the worst. 
I, th- I think in many cases that's true. Yeah, it's weird because most of the time uh, uh, people I talk to are much more optimistic than I am. So this is kind of a weird situation for me to be in. So uh, there's there's another point I want to talk to you about. You mentioned in one of the essays that I, I think I might disagree with you on. Uh, you were right at one point that you don't think politicians don't put nearly enough time into what you call moral due diligence, and you write, uh, a few hours per year seems like a high estimate. And, you know, I'm not sure about that. I I don't, I guess I can envision scenarios pretty easily in which politicians at least wrestle with their consciousness to a certain point to decide, well, you know, how far do I want to go? I can do this, but not that. And, and I mean, you, but you don't really think that's that's plausible. You think I'm giving them too much credit. Well, I think that you're right in a sense. I think that politicians do have low-level crises, crises of conscience where it's like, well, can I really compromise on abortion given that I have these very strong views on abortion? There's something else here, but I don't know. That kind of thing. The kind of moral due diligence I'm talking about is a much stronger kind of maybe my society is wrong. Mm, okay. Fundamental values of the society are bad. and what are the what you know, like what would someone that was not in the society from a very different place and time actually think about us and what can i what do i actually conclude from that that is the much higher level and again it's it's like it's one where you say well is that really incumbent on people here's the thing if you just step back and think about almost all human societies around the world or that have ever been like to almost everyone like most of them just seem terrible it's like well most of them are just they're slave societies they're societies where they go and genocide people from other groups there's the you know, so there's societies where women can't drive you know, just list this and say yeah and, you know, almost every you know, most people in those societies that seemed okay and how do we ever improve a lot of it does come from some moral philosopher saying yeah well i know that we think this is okay but why that kind of thing you know and asking questions like that is just so unusual for human beings most people say oh, i'm a practical person i don't have time to sit around worrying about that well, for most people, since you don't actually hold the power of life and death, you can say, yeah, well, it's not really up to me anyway, so I don't need to work out a good story about this. But once you are the person who has that life and death power, that's where the excuse of, of you know, I don't, I, like, why is, it, why is this coming on me? It's because you're the person that decides this. You're the person that decides whether to go and let people out of the prison for having the wrong religion. So you really ought to think about whether it's okay to put people in jail for having the wrong religion. You know, but but it sounds like there, I think I might have detected at least a note of optimism in that if we go back and look at this in a long enough timeline, it seems like societies are less evil and the people in charge are making less evil decisions. And so that's that's at least something, right? I mean, not saying the politicians are evil. I, I, I do think things have improved a lot. I mean, it, it might be hard to actually detect that in the body count. But if you remember, yeah, well, we have a lot more capacity to do evil than we did in the past, then I think it is very reasonable to say, wow, right, well, so far we haven't blown up the world in World War III. I think that in earlier times they would have by now, so chalk one up for us. It is a damning of faint praise, but, yeah, I think there has been a general moral progress. You know, like I would say that in the late 30s, early 40s, I would have been like, I don't even know if I can say that there's moral progress. Things have been so bad with these two world wars, but now we've had another 77 years since World War II. And all right, things are looking okay for now, but gee, don't disappoint. Don't let me down, people. <laughs>
Okay, let's let's get back to that that move away from that optimism for a second. But but let's assume that you're right. That you know, successful politicians they just are more evil than normal people. Maybe even more than successful CEOs. You know, it, it seems to me that this is not something that people would argue with you with for the most part. I mean, you take a look at surveys and trust in Congress or the government to do the right thing, and it, it's pretty pretty horrifically low, really. Um, but Weirdly, if you take a look at when you ask people about what they think about their representative, those numbers tend to be a lot higher. And I was thinking about this in terms of this idea of evil. And I wonder, is, is it do you think because people sort of just for some reason have been conned into believing their representative isn't so evil or maybe that they're like, yeah, he's an evil bastard, but he's my evil bastard, you know, and that's OK. That's a good question. I think that last answer is very unusual. I've heard almost no one make it except someone who's just trying to cause trouble and be mischievous. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, I think it's more of the better you know a person, even when you see a lot of terrible things they do, the harder it is for you to actually call them evil. It's just part of human nature. You don't want to call someone evil to their face, even if they really have done a lot of bad stuff. Um, you, you can really see this uh, in fiction. Where if you there are there are many movies and TV shows that show things from the point of view of a bad person, and if all that you knew was a neutral description of the story, you would definitely consider the person terrible. But when you see it all through their own eyes and really get to know them, it's hard to maintain that edge. One from recent years, of course, is Walter White from Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just describe the character in a neutral tone to someone who's never watched the show. I think almost anyone would say, what a monster. But when you actually see the story unfold through his own eyes, step by step, it is so easy to sympathize with him. I mean, even Tony Soprano is presented as a gangster from the very beginning. Like, like people like him. He's got charisma. He's, he's funny sometimes. You know, the idea that evil people would never be funny, right? Of course yeah. they're going to be funny sometimes. But it's, it is hard to just keep this steely judgment of, well, I'm not going to allow my judgment. I'm not going to allow my view to be clouded by the fact that I hung out with you and you're a fun person. Let's move on to something that's related uh, to, to evil. And certainly the subject of a number of your essays or comes into a lot of them, demagoguery. Um, mm -hmm. Now, Generally speaking, kind of a standard definition, it's someone who appeals to popular prejudices as opposed to rational argument. It's not that you disagree with that definition, but you propose your own very interesting definition. You write, demagoguery is the politics of social desirability bias. Um, so could you talk a little bit about your definition and how, how it kind of differs and why you think it maybe captures something that the standard definition maybe, maybe might not? So to back up, social desirability bias, this is the psychological idea that, des that most deserves vastly more attention than it gets. The intuition is very simple. When the truth sounds bad, people lie. But the next step is to say, if the lies become so ubiquitous, people will often just forget that they're lying, forget that these are lies, and start to very sincerely repeat truly absurd stuff. Right, so, so, so the classic examples of social desirability bias are things like people overstate their church attendance. They overstate their voting. Right, people are, you know, lie because going to church sounds good, so people lie when you ask them, did you go to church last weekend? Voting sounds good, so people, people lie when you ask them, did they vote? But then it's at, when you think about it more, it actually extends into 
many other kinds of language. Things like, can you come to my party? Oh, uh, no, I can't. It's like, well, will you be on the moon? Will you be, will you be in a cage? Will you, will you just be physically unable to get to the party? It's really, all right, well, actually, the truth is I can come, but I don't want to. But saying I can come but don't want to doesn't sound good, so people lie. But notice, that's a lie where you actually have to consciously think about it even to realize that it is a lie. Right. Because we got so used to this language, which is designed to obscure the ugly truth of priorities. Yes. Well, the reason I don't do it is because I have finite resources and you're not my top priority. So I'm not going to do it. You know, of course, we have other things like the alcoholic says, oh, you know, I, I so desperately want to change, but I just can't help myself. It's like, hmm, can you be able to help yourself when I'm watching you? So it's just when you're not being watched that so you somehow lose your ability to not drink a beverage. Sounds more like you. This is an effort to escape the social consequences of bad behavior. One where again you may be so sucked in by your own performance that you are actually you actually at the time are, are feeling sincere. And when we extend this to politics and and just take this lens of social desirability bias. Just consider almost any political speech and read the sentences and assess, are the sentences true? Say, like, you will find that almost nothing that politicians say is actually really literally true. When someone says, we're doing everything possible to help Ukraine. Right. No, you're not. Sure. Everything possible would be every penny that we have above and beyond what we need to stay alive to keep producing more stuff in Ukraine. So it is not true that we are doing everything that 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 we can. When someone says nothing is more important than education, like, well, education is more important than food? I don't think so. And yet people say stuff like this. But I mean, now, does that does that matter? I guess is the question I can hear someone saying. It's like, yeah, but that's just we all understand that and we all sort of factor that in. And so just like when if, you know, my friend says, oh, I can't come to your thing. I know it's probably just trying to let me down nicely. And so, I mean, how does this, I guess, how does this matter? Do you think this matters in a, in any kind of a substantive sort of meaningful way when applied to politics? Yeah, I think, so I think that it does matter enormously in politics because politics is all about words. So that it often comes down to who has the better words determines who gets power. And then once you've spoken the words, even if the words are literally extremely unwise, there's such a strong temptation to try to follow through with even exaggerated promises. So when someone says, look, if it saves one life, we ought to do it. Right now, in terms of risk analysis, this is just ridiculous. we, We could not possibly go and apply the standard and expect to have any really much of anything else in life. We really can see a lot of cases where governments go and pour an astronomical amount of resources into preventing an extremely small risk. And I think this really is a case where they are they, they wind up get they wind up getting power with this hyperbolic rhetoric. And then they once they're there, they feel locked in. Now that I've said we should like we should do everything possible to prevent COVID, then I guess we should keep kids wearing masks until doomsday. Yeah, you know, because otherwise, I, am, I oh, that shows that I really didn't mean what I said. Um, now, and, you know, once you understand this, what I say is like when you listen to politicians, you will see that a lot of what they are doing is just trying to go and say something that sounds good, no matter how ridiculous it is, and they're also trying to maneuver their opponent into saying something that sounds bad. Sure, like like you'll say like like you just want people to die. <laughs> right? There's actually a YouTube video uh, where where the you know, comedian Remy has a whole rap. You know, you just want people to die. 
But you watch this, and you know, he starts off with some actual clips of politicians saying this. And here's the, you know, the harsh reality is that we make decisions that, that, that risk, li- risk lives all the time. Right? We risk our own lives. You bet your life that when you drive, you're not going to die that day. It's a low risk. But it's one where you say, well, look, on the one hand, I could die. But on the other hand, I want to enjoy my life. So I'm going to go and take the risk. For politicians, they will. it is just so hard for a politician to go and openly say, yes, oh, yeah, we're taking a risk. And this is going to raise COVID deaths by 10%, but it's going to increase quality of life by a whole lot. So we should totally do it. Or you know, another example I like is, have you, you know, think about this. Have you ever heard a politician really in history say, I've gone and thought a lot about this war, and I believe there's a 50% chance it will improve things, 30% chance it makes no difference, 20% chance it makes things worse. Those are good odds. Let's do it. This is just nothing you will ever hear from a politician. Instead, politicians will say, this this is definitely right, certainly right, victory is assured. As long as we do this and work together and and the American people and our greatness and righteous might do this, we can't lose. Well, you know, but but and, I, and the other side saying the same thing, of course. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think, though, this makes me think about uh, uh, the first book of yours I read, The Myth of the Rational Voter, right? Mm-hmm. So if, 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 if a politician has read that book, and really everyone should read that book, I think still is, yeah, absolutely you know, right. but. But you read that, you say, well, people aren't, you know, people aren't rational in a lot of ways, certainly in a lot of economic ways. And so therefore, I mean, it makes a lot more sense for me to appeal to their emotion with demagoguery. And then when I get into power, I'll do what I can behind the scenes and sort of just, you know, bullshit people, essentially, to the extent that I can. To just to, just enough to get into power and stay in power so I can make their lives better, even if they don't appreciate what I'm doing for them. You know, I mean, the, there's some of that going on, right? Uh, so that's the optimistic scenario, and it happens sometimes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, like, if, if you just say, well, like, I mean, this is what I call, like, the world isn't on fire test, or sometimes someone will say, well, doesn't democracy work at all? And I... Well, you, if there's a, a window in the room, I look outside and say, yeah, well, it's not out fire, on fire out there, so I guess it's not a total disaster. Uh, but if you have higher standards than that, that's where I say that politics is looking really bad. And again, and, and honestly, I frame it this way to say, look, this isn't just the people you disagree with who do this. They all do it. Yeah, yeah. And once you actually start listening to the people on your side and realize, wow, I call the other side liars. My people, they're also liars. And really, when you talk about own politician being a liar or not, there's an implicit point where you say, well, we're not going to call all, a bunch of things that are lies, lies, because otherwise they're all liars all the time. We're only, you know, it has to be real specific for it to be a lie. Yeah. It has to be like a number. <laughs> we're not going to call it a lie when someone says, you know, like, like I will not rest until Al-Qaeda is defeated. That's <laughs> like, Really? Yeah. Can we put a hidden camera on you? But then, as I said, the problem is that Often, you know, often when someone comes to power on hyperbolic rhetoric, it's just hard to back down and to really face the trade-offs, and you kind of lock yourself in. Given that you said that you really you care about this a lot, how can you then just go and cavalierly drop this? Um, right, and of course, part of it is you know, while I think the politicians are evil, that does not preclude them from being sincere fanatics. And I think there's <laughs> a lot of that going yeah. on too. Um, you know, yeah, like the, you, know, you know, so much of our judgment of people is, well, does he you know, like like is he is he sincere? It's like, well, like I think Hitler was quite sincere. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah, you know, like like you know, like, like you, know, you read Mein Kampf and look at what he did. It seemed like he mostly followed through. Sure, you may say that he 
fudged a few things, but he was the kind of guy who had a very evil blueprint that he seemed to really believe in. And whereas a lot of people would have done what you were saying, where it's like, well, I got empowered saying the Druze are terrible, but I don't want to go and definitely don't want to kill them all. In fact, we kind of need them for our nuclear program. So let's go and come up with some kind of reasonable modus vivendi. And Hitler's the kind of guy who you know, didn't immediately kill them, of course, but now, in hindsight, we can see, wow, that guy seemed like it was really important to him to go and murder millions of people, and he believed in that. So I, I want to talk a little bit also about maybe uh, a, a typology in a way or some distinctions of types of political evil. And I'm wondering if you think that when we think about uh, ideological lines, and I'll say like, uh, you know, liberal, conservative, libertarian, um, are there, do you think certain ways in which politicians who are kind of more in those camps are characteristically evil or is just all political evil kind of the same sort of thing? I guess the simplest story would be that conservatives tend to defend evils that exist and liberals tend to push (laughs) new evils. (laughs) That's, you know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but there's something to that. You, know, you can look around the world and you see them you know, like throughout history, most governments have not been radical in any sense. There have been traditional dictatorships with power passed on from, if not father to son, then at least from father to the closest male relative that he feels like he can rely upon. Right? So that's quite normal. And, you know, and it's not like these governments throughout history don't do terrible things. Uh, so, of course, they got slavery and genocide. But nevertheless, throughout most of history, it's most. It's largely been about let's maintain the status quo and just keep doing the evil stuff we're already doing, and we're not going to wonder about it. Whereas what we think of as the left, they are much more likely to have some new ideas, which might mean challenging bad things that exist. Although historically, we can see there's also it's a crazy amount of just coming up with some new evils that hadn't occurred to anyone before that you would do, and they say, yeah, let's let's just go and. You know, take all the farmers' land and turn them into slaves. This is a big part of, of Marxism and especially Marxism-Leninism. And I would say before they came along, there's like, wait, what? Why would we do that? That's their land. They've been farming it for a long time. Why do you want to go and take their land from them and gunpoint and murder anyone who resists? And then, like, why? What would be the point even? So that's the kind of thing that we see more often on the left are some new idea that you just say has to be enforced. Again, the again taking... These are obviously the most extreme cases, sure. not representative of all people on the left. But, you know, Khmer Rouge, let's get rid of all the money. <laughs> this is not something that would have occurred to most governments throughout history, no. uh, which would have been, would temperamentally be, have been much more conservative. So that is why I would say that is one big difference uh, is just the degree of, of you know, is, well, are we just going to stick with the evils that we know and defend them? Right? Or are we going to come up with some new ones? You know, like, like in terms of common sense, if your society's really terrible, then you'd say, well, like, like almost like almost any change would be an improvement, and so this is where the right wing politicians would be worse and left wing ones would be better. Although, like one of the saddest jokes of history is anytime someone says, "How could things possibly get worse?" Yeah, and then and then you read to you read the next chapter in the history book. Oh, you know, like, the number of people before World War One were saying, "How could anything be worse than Tsarism?" Yeah. Yeah, it actually gets a hell of a lot worse than Tsarism. I mean, for libertarian politicians, this will sound self-serving because I have such strong libertarian views. Let's say that libertarians hold power so so, so rarely, it's just hard really to say that much. Although it is true that if your main goal is to 
reduce the power of the state, this is almost automatically requiring you to go and give up your power. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so, you know, I think yeah. probably the closest thing we've seen to libertarian politicians, at least in the rate of change sense, are, is the first generation of post-communist leaders in the Soviet bloc. And I would say that compared to other politicians, they mostly look pretty good. You know, like, uh, you know, there, there were, of course, a number of guys who started off talking about freedom and ended up establishing new horrible dictatorships. Uh, so, uh, you know, like you see uh, in the stands in Central Asia or Belarus. Uh, nevertheless, the share of people started off governing a all-powerful police state and who dismantled most of it was pretty sh- pretty shocking. Again, I think it's it's not right to say that those guys were libertarians, but they definitely were pushing for big libertarian reforms. So I, I guess it sounds to me like you, you're concluding that the kind of devil-you-know conservative-type evil tends to be worse or than the kind of, well, what new evil thing can we invent sort of thing from, from the left? Well, it's kind of a broad generalization. Well, I mean, what I would say is, look, look I would say that once things are tolerable, then that's true. Yeah. But, you know, like, like, you know the times when I would just, you know, like, if, you, if you go back to, let's see, what would be a good example? Um, you know, like Imperial China or something like that. And then you look around and you say, wow, this is, you know, things are really terrible here. This is a monstrous tyranny. They go and murder the entire family of a minister that they don't like. You know, the, you know that, that's where... At least, like you know, you, know, you say that you know, like, well, someone who comes along with reforms probably is going to be improvement. Although, uh, then if you know enough Chinese history, yeah. <laughs> and then again, you might say, eh, I don't know about that. Let's. Um, I mean, you know, I guess sort of, sort of my, my my more general view is that usually your conservative regimes start off bad and then they tone down over time, and mm-hmm. then by the time that they are weak enough to overthrow, that's when it's probably going to be worse. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, one, I guess, criti- one other critique I, I think some people might have uh, of, of some of these ideas is that, well, sure, it's true that politicians are motivated by power, but politicians are human beings. Well, as far as we know, human beings and like all human beings, they're motivated by a lot of things. And so it's not unreasonable to say, sure, they're, they, they have a greater desire for power than most folks. But in many cases, that's tempered by their sincere desire to really want to serve the people and that sort of thing. And you're, I, I, you're not, it sounds to me like you're not denying that, right? Well, let's see. I, uh, I would say that I th- I would probably deny about 95% of that. You know, here's, here's how to respond. You know, I would say, look, you know, most people are just like you say, but Olympic athletes, what are they like? Yeah. So like Olympic athletes, crazy. just to get to where they are, they really have to have sacrificed almost everything else in their lives. They can't be normal people and get to that position because even if they're probably born with tremendous talent, there are so many tremendously talented people who don't get into the Olympics, much less win the prizes. And therefore, the people that do are people who had great talent, but also incredible dedication, families that were super supportive, and just being willing to win at you know, at, at all the costs that were within the observed range. Of course, they probably never had to murder anyone. There's the Probably's famous Nancy yeah. <laughs> incident, but things like that. Right? And then similarly, I would say for politicians, yeah, look, of course, most human beings would not make any sacrifice at all, at all in order to get there. But if you look at the competition to realize you have to win this incredible contest to get to the top. The people win probably are people who really would sacrifice almost anything, although not quite. 
not quite. I mean, here I think about a, a politician that most people think of as just a, a pretty regular guy, Mitt Romney. And, you know, like, like you know, you listen to this guy, like, you wouldn't be scared of him if he was at dinner with you. So, yeah, he's just like, like Mitt, no big deal. And yet to realize this is a guy who officially starts off being pro-life. And then he wants to be, which, you know, it's a position that I, it's not mine, but I can totally understand it. And to be pro-life, though, you have to be thinking, wow, we are murdering millions of innocent people per year. That's terrible. I guess, I guess right now it's on to, down. I think, I think be right now, like last year, I think we're under a million abortions yeah, a year. Yeah, something less, like that. Still, yeah. still a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. It adds up to millions. Right. So that that view to say, wow, we're murdering millions of people. That's terrible. And then he wants to become governor of Massachusetts. So guess what? He changed his mind. Right now, you could say, well, there's some new argument that came along. Oh, we're not murdering millions of people. Turns out something, something. I think it's just so implausible to think that Mitt heard any argument that changed his mind about abortion. Rather, he realized I'm not going to get power unless I pretend to change my mind on this thing. And so he does. And then if you if you had any lingering doubts about the sincerity of his conviction, then you see that he runs to become the Republican nominee. And then it turns out he's right the first time. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I am pro-life, actually. I mean, it, you know, it, yeah, it, sure. But it's that argument. Yeah, 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 it's not a marginal issue. It's not changing your mind about whether to build a park. No, somewhere. yeah. This is, first I thought that it was mass murder. Then I changed my mind and I thought that it, and I decided it's like a, it's a horrible violation of a woman's right to her own body. And now I realize I was right the first time. And, you know, like, and did he ever go and explain what argument changed his mind the first time? And then what the flaw, you know, what was the flaw in my first view? How did the argument change my mind? How did I, how the, then what was a flaw in the way in what I thought was the correction? Sure. Right? I mean, like, like the idea that he would have any answers to these questions is ridiculous. Obviously, he just conveniently said new things to get power. And this is a guy who seems like a pretty normal, like, like a pretty normal human being as far as, as far as politicians go. And then you look at other ones like, gee, these people are terrible. Or like I guess all the all the members of the Republican establishment who in 2015 and 2016 said that Donald Trump was a dangerously deranged, insane person, and you know, but fell right in. So yeah, I'm, but you know, I think part the of facts change. I change my mind. What do you do, sir? But but you know, I think part of that that the argument that I think they would behind closed doors they would say, yeah, listen, you're right, and it's all spin and smoke and mirrors. But the only reason I do that is because I know that unless I do that, I can't be in a position to do good things to the people. I mean, I, I one of the one of the films I show, uh, uh, speaking of demagogues, I show uh, the kids in, in one of my film classes in politics is uh, All the King's Men, right? Willie Stark on kind of Huey Long back then. I mean, that's the kind of good, where does good come? Good comes out of bad and you have to play ball to be in that position because the system selects for these sort of attributes. And if you don't play the game, then you're never going to be in a position. And isn't it better if a good person like me pretends to be bad and then can do good things as opposed to some really bad person like my opponent, right? Yes, classic. Uh, so for that, I actually have what I consider almost the killer argument. Okay. So this is all right. All right. The Supreme Court. So suppose you're a Supreme Court justice and your side controls the presidency and the Senate. Right. Now, how old do they have to be before they voluntarily resign so they can be replaced with a younger copy of themselves? And the answer is, sure. like, people basically, they wait till yeah. their 70s or 80s, yep. or often they just die in power. Even though if they really cared about getting the good things done, and they looked in the mirror and say, I'm 80, I could drop dead any day. Do I really want to go and keep having me be the person that exercised the power? 
rather than let, let myself be replaced by someone that I would, that would be very similar to myself. And what we know is that Supreme Court justice, who again, normally seem like very civil, civilized, dignified people, and yet almost all of them just cling to power because it's not enough for the good thing to happen. They have to be the ones whose hands are doing it. And again, if you just think about, I would think about it from the, from the point of view of what their day is like, yeah, like retirement, retiring as a Supreme Court justice sucks. As long as you're a Supreme Court justice, it, justice, you can, you bestride the world like a colossus. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm a super important person. I'm a fountain of justice. I, what stands between the world and evil. And then you resign and then who cares about you anymore? Then you, maybe you get to go and be on the rubber chicken circuit. Big deal. And of course, this is a, a very real world thing because a lot of folks on the left are making yeah. exactly that argument from, for uh, Justice Ginsburg. Yeah. Yeah, like, like all of you geezers retire so that we can do good. It's like, no, I don't think so. Right. I mean, and just to get inside that, like, what possible argument could you have for not retiring once your party has the president, uh, presidency and the Senate? To say, no, my replacement, simple-minded people might think it would just be a younger version of me, but only I can write these brilliant judicial <laughs> opinions. Oh, the whole system would come crashing down without me. Far better that I... To risk it for another year or two and then get replaced. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, right. and, and again, these are people that seem like some of the most dignified, least obviously grotesque people in power. And yet, when you look at their behavior, you realize, oh, they are savoring this power. They're licking their chops. No, like, why else would they not resign at this point? Well, yeah, I, another way to look at this whole idea of political evil, I think, is in terms of of systems, because I think you can make a case that you can design systems in ways that sort of incentivize what I would call evil behavior. And, and a lot of times I think about this in terms of campaign finance, because Larry Lessig, who's been on the show and who I have a lot, a lot of respect for, big campaign finance guys, argued that you can have you know good people in a good system, which is a system, we'll say, designed to make evil more difficult, good people in a bad system, bad people in a good system, and then, of course, bad people in a bad system. And I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on that kind of typology. And if you think there's something to it, what, where you'd say we are in, currently at national politics in the U.S.? Now, the typology, of course, makes perfect sense. It's just a question of where do we slot things in the real world. And I, a way that you could think about my story is that the politics, especially at, high, at higher levels of power, uh, we've got a bad system, but they're bad people. And when you, when you hear these off-the-record things saying, I'm really good, but I have to go and pretend to be bad in order to get power, like, that's just what a bad person would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> right. And then it's like, okay, well, how do we know then? And that's where I would look at things like the Supreme Court and realize these are people who want the power so badly, they will actually let some, they would rather die in office to be replaced by someone that they hate <laughs> than give it up to, to a younger version of themselves. So, yeah, I think that the right story is precisely that they are actually bad people in a bad system. Of course, you know, that's binary thinking, which I sure. don't like. There's, there's, there, there are degrees and there are better and worse systems. And I would say that you know, the, system, you know, the, the Russian system, for example, is a worse system than the American system. And I do think that people in power in Russia are worse than the people in power in the U.S., you know, so I am a big fan, as you might guess, reading the book about just reading the biographies of especially the worst dictators, people at the very top of the worst systems. 
right? And what I will say is that my, my, my general read of people who get to power in bad systems is that, you know, they're bad people who got to power in bad systems. And we know this because even when they have actual latitude, we see them just doing terrible things. And like, for example, um, you know, Barry Estelle, secret police chief, from as far as we can tell, he was actually a serial rapist murderer who would do it for fun, right? And it's like, hmm, like, do you, like, like how many like, American politicians do you think would do that? And like, even I was like, I think that's be pretty like That's so weird. To be to, to like be a murderer rapist, it's one thing just to be you know sort of like like you know, like you know a conventional sexual predator or or just like an extreme womanizer. But like when you read about what appears that Maria did, that's where you're like my God! So the guy who's who's in charge of mass murder as his job is also someone who does this kind of thing for his jollies. Yeah, he took his right. work home Jesus. with him in the worst way. Yeah, um, but you know, I mean, part of that, right? It seems to me is 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 system design. I mean, as an economist, I'm sure you have no problem agreeing with the idea that people respond to incentives. And so how you, how you structure the incentives in a system are going to determine the extent to which evil people prosper and the extent to which evil behaviors are rewarded or not. And, and so that gets me, one of my big folks, listeners know that for a long time, I've said that I think while the framers might have done a fantastic job of system design for maybe 200 plus years ago, there were some, it seems to me, some pretty clear incentive problems and structural issues with the system we've set up that kind of make evil behavior something that's rewarded and promoted. I wanted to get your take on, you know, whether you think the framers just designed a faulty system or just one that needs to be updated or the extent to which you think systems are to be looked at or blamed, if you will, for this kind of thing. That's a, that's really a very fair question. I mean, my own view is, you know, like, you know, if voters had more reasonable views per the myth rational voter, I think the current system would be working very well. So I think you know, like, you know, like you could say the root problem is that voters are just so unreasonable that they respond to demagoguery. I mean, part of what I'm trying to do in my book is really to raise awareness and to say, wait a second, you know, so when you hear people go and say all this flowery rhetoric, does that you know, like you know, is it what they're saying even true? Right. Right. No. And like, why do you think they're telling you these lies to get power? All right. Well, do you trust a person like that to have power? That you know, so like I, in, a, in a way, what like a lot of what I'm trying to do is just to get you know, is to reduce the demagoguery in the system just by raising awareness of what the system really is. Because when you're participating in it, it's so easy just to forget what's going on. You really do need to calm down and step back. The one thing that I notice is when I like uh, a few times I've been traveling in other country other countries during their elections, and that's when what I'm thinking I think would be pretty clear to almost anyone. Like I was in Hungary right before their last election, and you see these campaign ads and you're like, like why would that persuade anyone it just seems like ridiculous like ridiculous nonsense or or lies and then you know to someone who's hungarian they're used to it and then it's like no no no, no it's not but like anyone else it's like it seems like you are just going and telling people what they want to hear to get power and, uh. and of course if 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 you come down with on the point of the problem with democracy is that the people aren't good enough for the system then that's it's a uh, quite a pretty heavy haul, right? Not so much educating. I would say it's not just an educational issue. It's a, it's a problem of, of trying to combat and get people to recognize, be self-aware enough to understand their own irrationality, which is not an easy thing, certainly. Yes. So I mean, I know there are some people who say, well, in that case, we should totally let politicians off the hook. It's not their fault that the way that they get power is by telling piles of lies to people that will only vote for liars. And while I do have some sympathy for that, 
there's still the there's I still see like there's still the issue of like typical voter you know there's really very little they can do about this and so to say like you didn't really think about this very hard and I, I didn't think about it very hard but on the other hand like I really don't have much power say like politicians are people who don't think about it very hard at all even though they really do have a lot of this power and especially of course after you get elected this is where you say oh well I won now what should I do what now and say well if I want to get reelected I better do X Y Z he says yeah but Maybe you should just settle for having one term and doing the right thing. Yeah, very weird thinking for for almost any high-level politician, <laughs> for sure, right? Yeah, well, one thing I want to get back to, because I think it's incredibly important, and you've hit on it in a lot of the essays here, one of the most evil things anyone can do, right, is to order the death of someone or be complicit in the death of individuals, people who don't deserve to die, and that that seems to me to get at the root of your pacifism, which you talk about in the book. And I was wondering if you could kind of you do this in the book, but could you kind of make the briefcase for your pacifism? Absolutely. So I'm well aware that around the world, people consider pacifism one of these doctrines that sounds really good, but works terribly in practice. Yeah. And if it is, if you do think of pacifism, the view that you should never fight back from under any circumstances. Yeah, that is a stupid view. Uh, but there is another definition of pacifism that I think is very widely used and that I do endorse, and that is just the opposition to war between states. Right now, what am I thinking? And again, it does not mean absolute opposition, but I will say a strong presumption against. And what is my argument there? Well, I have a piece called The Common Sense Case for Pacifism, and really, this is an argument. So this is not the kind of thing where I'm just telling you what I feel. Rather, I'm saying, look, here are some premises. Each premise sounds good, sounds true, if you really, and if we work through it, it implies something you don't already believe. And then you, can, you, know, like you can't just reject the conclusion. You've got to tell me which premise is wrong. Right? So the first premise of this is that modern warfare, modern warfare always involves deliberately killing a lot of innocent people. Right? That's just the way it is. The weapons, they're just too big. Right? So you can quibble about, well, is it murder or manslaughter? Yeah, like I firebombed the city, but I was only trying to kill the soldiers there. Uh, you know, so it just so happened there were a million innocent people nearby, and I couldn't figure out a way to kill them. Right, but you know, we, for any normal human being, we would call that murder or manslaughter. This is the way that modern wars are fought. Right, so collateral damage uh, is the term yeah, we use. Yeah, 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 collateral damage. Yeah, you like we have this mythology, the defensive war, but defensive war really means that we're going to go and kill a pile of innocent people because most of the people on the other side really had nothing to do with the war; they're just there. Right, you know. You know, there's a lot of desperate efforts to say, no, 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 like all Germans are guilty for World War II. Like, what about all the people who are against Hitler? Because there are millions of them. They're guilty for Hitler too, right? And then even if you say, no, they're still guilty. All right, what about the German babies? What about them? What were they supposed to do, right? So it's, like, it really, really does require, you know, modern warfare does involve you know, murder or manslaughter of large numbers of innocent people, right? So that's the first premise, right? And then second premise is that, uh, it is not. Uh, it is morally wrong to commit murder, or manslaughter, unless you have high certainty that it will lead to a large benefit in excess of the costs. So this isn't just utilitarian. One saying that the benefits have to be greater than the costs. This is one saying you need to have a high degree of confidence the benefits are substantially greater than the costs. And then again, this is the idea of like, would it be okay to go and murder someone because you are going to be because you know, like you know, like mur you murder someone who's eighty five years old. So yeah, well, like he's only he's probably gonna you know, like you know he doesn't want to die, but he'll probably be dead within a year anyway. And uh, like I could really use his money, so it really only costs him like a hundred thousand dollars to die early, and I get and I and I get one hundred five thousand, so it's okay, right? This is one where hardly anyone would accept that. 
But on the other hand, this is open to, I have to go and kill this old guy to save the world. All right, fine, I'll do that. All right. Um, you know, this, this is all based upon a famous moral hypothetical involving a doctor who has five patients, each of whom needs a different life-saving kidney transplant. And one needs lungs, one needs a heart, one needs two kidneys, one needs a liver, one needs, I don't know, whatever, you know, some other <laughs> thing you desperately need, whatever it is, pancreas, I don't know. Um, right? And then guess what? A guy happens to walk by. No one knows this guy. He has no friends, no family. He's got all the organs. Would it be morally okay to murder him, harvest his organs, as long as nobody found out? All right. And almost everyone says, no, it's not okay. So that means that you've got to have more than, you know, not just for the benefits have to exceed costs. We need to have more than five to one. All right. So similarly, I say, when you're thinking about committing murder or manslaughter in a war, it's not enough just to say that this is probably, that this is going to, this is going to pay for itself. There's got to be knowledge of a large excess of benefits over costs. And then the last premise, this is the one that is empirical, and I say has a lot of evidence in favor, is that humans' ability to forecast the long-run effects of war are actually very poor. Uh, there's Phil Tetlock's book, Expert Political Judgment, How Good Is It, How Can We Know, where he actually got foreign policy experts to make a whole bunch of predictions and then waited for time to lapse, <laughs> yeah. or elapse, and then showed that their accuracy was low. Right. Uh, it is very tempting to think uh, that you can't, that you've got a crystal ball and you see the future and you say, if only we go and do this one more right here, right now, we'll be saving millions of lives. And yet we know from, uh, we know from both of the experiments that people are often wrong about that. They have low accuracy. And also from history, there's so many examples of people thought that, well, they just turned out to be not just a little wrong, just grossly an error. You know, remember, World War One is the war to end all war. <laughs> yet we call it World War One, suggesting it wasn't. Right, that kind of thing, right? So you go and you snap this together. So we've got war actually does involve murder and manslaughter, even for the side that we think of as the good side. Right? In almost every case you can think of, maybe not 100%, but almost every case you can think of. So, uh, se uh, secondly, um, yeah, so, uh, let's see. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, se so secondly, it is, very hard, uh, it is very hard to know that the benefits greatly exceed the costs in any particular case. And they are right, so rather, so rather, rather to be more acceptable, the benefits would have to greatly exceed the costs. And then finally, it's hard to ever know that. Well, I got to say, so, Brian, when I, when I apply those, when I when I apply those those to our military interventions and in, say the last one hundred years, the only one that it seems to me that I would say, "Yup, let's do it," would be World War II, and everything after that, it, it comes up with a, whether it's desert. Desert Storm, Iraq, Afghanistan, even aiding eating Ukraine right now because we might not we might not be technically in a war, but we're I mean it, it's you know the next next thing to it, right? So it seems to me that formulation would basically suggest that every every military involvement we've been in since fighting Hitler uh, and Japan has been something that we shouldn't have been involved in. That's a that's a big that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah it is. Right. And of course, even with World War II, we know in hindsight that it worked out well. But 1946, what would, you, what would have been a reasonable opinion about the likelihood of World War III happening in the next 10 years? Right. Because, yeah. 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 So, you know, like, I mean, like, honestly, like sometimes people say, like, how can you stay optimistic in the world given how terrible it is? So, well, at least I'm not in 1945. Because if we were in 1945 and everyone else was partying in the streets after the victory over you know, victories in Europe and Japan. Honestly, I think I would have been like, this is not over. 
this is going to get worse. Uh, this is going to get a lot worse. This could be, this is just the beginning of it. This is like these nuclear weapons could be proliferating very quickly. Why should we think they won't all, won't be launched? There won't, there won't be not World War Three very quickly. And honestly, like, and then of course, a bunch of terrible things did happen uh, in the, in the years following World War Two. most obviously the fall of China to communism. I'm pretty sure you know about the astronomical estimates of the number of people murdered by Mao Zedong. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, like many tens of millions, many, many holocausts happened in China under Mao Zedong when this plausibly would not have happened. I mean, in fact, I think you can commonly say would not have happened if uh, Japan had remained in control of, mo- of, of, of much of China. And so even there, it's like, my God, like even cases like that, it's actually really hard to know. On the other hand, I think I would like, so again, there's ones where in hindsight, I say that things worked out really well. Like I say, the Korean War in hindsight worked out great. And, and, and maybe there's, saved, yeah. Even, yeah, saved two thirds of the Korean people from totalitarian tyranny. But with four, but on the other hand, in advance, I think it was really hard to know that. And again, saying, oh, this could be World War Three. Uh, I don't know about that. And I, I would think it sounds like, like you would make a distinction, maybe, or maybe you wouldn't, I don't know, between, uh, a, being involved in what one might call a war of choice and defending oneself from aggression maybe are two different categories of things. Or maybe not. I don't it's know. A very, it's a very convenient distinction. The problem is that in the real world, these wars of defense almost never stay wars of defense. Ukraine so far, bizarrely, actually seems like it has practically. So I don't know of any significant Ukrainian attack on Russians. Although, you know, I think of this, if the war actually starts to go well for Ukraine, then they are going to be leveling cities all over eastern and southern Ukraine. So, <laughs> like, of course, right? If they, if Ukraine gets the upper hand, they're going to want to recapture that territory. Sure. And that means yeah. they are going to go and murder, manslaughter a whole lot of innocent people that are there who really just trying to keep their heads down and stay alive. And we, what did they do to deserve this? Uh, so, like, it's definitely more understandable when people when people want to go and fight the war of national self defense. But on the other hand, like it really like like the point of like we're going to go and have to do murder and manslaughter in order to fight this war really does come up. You know, like the easiest cases are your so called wars of national liberation during the decolonization period. Their their way of thinking, of course, the, the rebels is look, this is all defensive because the French don't belong in Algeria, right? Right, and so whatever happens uh, is to like like they're like you know, like what, what all the people that we kill. That's just part of our defensive war. It's like look, if those people are not, like they are not the French government. They're just people living their lives, and you're going to go and murder them. Um, so there was a let's see this. There's, there's the famous movie, The Battle of Algiers, which is about the Algerian independence movement. It's uh, it is a dramatization of the actual events, uh, but still, it is a fantastic movie i, I think I, I can't remember whether i actually went up putting my essay on that into the book uh, do you remember i don't recall that one being in there yes right but basically there's a scene where one of the national liberation slash terrorist leaders says look well actually the revolution is only the first step uh, and it's in a way it's the easiest one and then once we win then it right. gets really hard and then you listen to this guy like well then why are you <laughs> fighting at all yeah <laughs> like, like, it wasn't so bad into the french like, like they might have been bad when they conquered you, but now things that the dust has settled and you got peace and like, just live with it, man. Like, don't, don't go and murder a million innocent people so you can get power. Well, let's, let's kind of wrap things up here with, I, I, I wonder if there are solutions, but you know, there, there are some people who would listen to a lot of this and say, well, 
one at least possible solution is the truth. Because if we had uh, kind of a free and fair and open marketplace of ideas, I believe in markets and truth too, and the truth will come out and the better ideas and the good will overcome the evil if they can only battle on a, on a level playing field. Uh, what do you think about that? I wishful thinking. I wish it was true. <laughs> right. So I, so I believe in the book, there's an essay called Monopolize the Pretty Lies. Yep. This is one where I talk about, well, what is the point of censorship anyway? There is this view, which you can get very strongly in George Orwell's 1984, that dictatorships, they're built on lies, and therefore dictatorships wage war on the truth. All right, and that sounds good. But then when you look at what actual dictatorships do, sure, they don't want you saying bad, true things about them. But much more importantly, they don't want you saying bad, false things about them. <laughs> because there's a lot more things like that. Like if you are in the government of Saudi Arabia, it's one thing for there to be a guy there saying, well, actually, the Quran isn't really true. And, you know, all right, you say, yeah, fine, jail that guy. You're not really worried that guy's going to get power in Saudi Arabia. The guy you're worried about is the guy who says, Allah, talk to me. He says that the Saudi royal family must die and that I have yeah. been given a mission to save Saudi Arabia through blood and fire. That's the guy the Saudis want to kill yeah. right away. <laughs> right. You know, and, and like, why? Well, because he's doing what they do. <laughs> he's going and trying to gain power. You know, so the Saudi government holds power with a bunch of ridiculous lies. And here's another guy who's out of power who thinks he's going to get power with his own uh, alternative set of ridiculous lies. Right? And that's really what dictatorships are much more afraid of, I say, is not just some humble speaker of literal truth who any person who listens to them will say, that guy's never going to get power. He's too honest. Right. The people that, that really make them frightened are people who seem like you know, like a rival fanaticism, a rival person who says, no, I, I you know, the greatest country in the world. No, like, like, it would be if I were in charge right now. It's the worst. It's hell on earth. If I were in power, then it would be yeah. the greatest. You say, OK, that guy, he is making a serious bid for power. He's saying the kinds of things that a winner would say to get power. So I don't think that that we can just count on free speech to give us truth, unfortunately. I, think, I don't think it's in this volume, but I have another essay, well, basically like one cheer for free speech saying, look, you can't say that free speech leads to truth because it hasn't. Just, you know, just look at, the, like we've had a bunch of competing religions around the world and the idea that in the countries where we have freedom of religion, that the one true religion is one out seems ridiculous. That's not true. So that's not how it really happens. What you can really say about free speech is it allows the people that want to pursue truth to keep doing it. So, it's a small <laughs> and lonely task, yeah. but at least it gets to happen in countries with free speech, whereas in countries that don't have it, God help you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, on the podcast a lot, we, we talk about, when we talk about kind of the grand sweep of history, I, I always say my, my co-host Jay has kind of the Whiggish view of history, believing that things always get better over time. And I'm much more of a cyclical, things can get really bad. And in fact, yeah, I think they're yeah. going to... I, like, I, like, I like the cyclical stories, Michael. <laughs> they're, they're really underrated. Okay. So that, that kind of gets to me, I guess, how optimistic are you about kind of evil and truth and in the when you look around, uh, how how optimistic are you about the short to medium term? What I will say is I'm optimistic about economic and technological progress, where we've got first of all civil models that explain how they work, and second of all we've got a lot of historical experience showing that they work like the models say. Right, so we've got that. 
right? So we're probably going to get richer and technology is going to get better. Part of the reason why we get richer is because of technology. That's not all of it, but it's a lot of it. So there I will say I'm optimistic. Uh, but in terms of will there be improvements in our politics, I don't really see much sign of it in the shorter medium term. You might say, wasn't there a very long-run tendency towards you know, towards better moral values winning out? And, All right, I guess it's very long, very slow. It doesn't really do me any good. <laughs> it doesn't, right. doesn't do my yeah. kids much any good. Uh, the economic technological progress that does my that actually helps me helps my kids. I get to see my I can I can reasonably expect to see my grandkids having a much higher standard of living than I do. Uh, but in terms of policy improving over time or the general moral fiber society improving there, I'd like to believe it, but I just don't see very much sign of it, unfortunately. And, and of course, you can you can always say, well, the technological improvement certainly can be used to create a, a, a fearsome surveillance state, something uh, that George yeah, Orwell was. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, mean I, I, I will say that on average, like, like it still definitely makes sense that you're better off in a high-tech country, even though yeah. tech can be used for bad reasons too. But still, you know, if you go to the lowest-tech countries in the world right now or the highest-tech ones, you definitely want to be in the high-tech ones. Even though, yeah, it's true. Like in the poorest countries, you don't have to worry about about someone surveilling you with a drone. <laughs> so, so I, I guess we could say to, to close that we should not abandon all hope, just maybe most. <laughs> I don't know, but well, well I, like honestly, like I just get a lot of hope over, uh, about you know, understanding the world accurately. Yeah, and I, and I, and I do think you know, like in, you know, like the essays here. A lot of these were ones where I felt like I was grappling with what was really going on as I wrote. And by writing, I came to understand the world a lot better. Yeah, definitely. And especially, you know, this, this idea of social desirability bias. This is one where when I first heard it, it's like, okay, that's kind of obvious, but you know, that's like, like, does it really add anything? And then the, this is one of the ideas where the more I thought about it, the more I said, wait a second. Now, this is big. This explains a lot of things that otherwise would be extremely puzzling. This explains why... When you listen to a politician very carefully, you realize he's just saying one lie after another. Uh, you know, it, 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 you just see why politics is, is so dysfunctional. Because it is this competition between who can go and say the prettier lies? Um, you know, so that, you know, that kind of thing really, really just stick with me. And also just you know, looking around the world and just understanding, like, why is there just so much horrible stuff done by people, done by governments? Why are there so many mass murders where... Like, like you just stand back and say, like, why do they even have to do it? Yeah. Like, what was the point of it even? It's not like, I understand killing your rivals. Why do you go and, like, murder a million innocent people, right? And then just to say, well, they're evil. Like, it's, a system, it's, yeah, it's a system where really bad people get on top. Right? And it's one where, you know, like, like, we know that there are some really evil private individuals. Like, whenever students are sort of looking at me and saying, like, how can you say such negative things about people? I always say, look. You're familiar. There are serial <laughs> killers who kidnap, torture, and murder children yeah. for fun. Yep. This is not my speculation. We know this is true. There are human beings like this in the world. There really are. And then what would a person like that do if they got control of a country? It's like, yeah, well, it's kind of like what about 10% of leaders do? Yeah, scary, like, scary Jesus thought. Jesus Christ, people that bad <laughs> are in charge of 10% of countries? Like, yeah, it's probably a pretty reasonable story. I know, you, you know, on the one hand, it is kind of horrifying, but on the other hand, there is a, for me at least, you know, a comfort in just saying, okay, now I understand what's going on. It's not ugly, but at least I get it now. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, as usual, our time has just flown by, and I've had a great time uh, once again talking with you. So, Brian, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, me too, Michael. It's always a pleasure. And readers can get. 
the new book, uh, How Evil Are Politicians, Essays and Demagoguery, straight from Amazon for 12 bucks. So the ebook is nine ninety nine. And if you click on my name on Amazon, you can get all my books at once. So. And, and links yes. will be in the show notes. Absolutely. Yep. Definitely. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.